0: Hello and welcome to A Minute's Applause, the football obituary podcast where we celebrate the lives of those who've played the game, live the game and love the game.
1: First of all today we're going to talk about Filma Singer, and I guess most of our listeners will remember him from a brief spell playing for Leeds in the Premier League. But we're also going to talk about a really vital goal that he scored for South Africa just as the country was coming out of the apartheid era. We're going to hear from inside the Leeds dressing room at the time. We'll talk to Tony DeRigo, a former England player who was there at Leeds. And we'll also hear from South Africa from a reporter, uh, Fidassande Sixaba, who will tell us about how he was coping with life after football he passed away recently at the age of 49.
0: Well, we'll also look back at the life and football career of Emiliano Salah, the 28-year-old Argentinian who was killed in a plane crash before he had the chance to play in English football. We'll talk to two former Wales internationals about the impact of his death on Cardiff City and we'll discuss the key moments in Emiliano Sala's football career.
1: And it's not just players. Uh, we'll hear about Hugh McIlvenny as well, who was probably the best Sports writer in the English language, certainly for some people. His journalism career spans 60 years. We're going to hear an extract from one of his most moving pieces. And we'll hear about
0: another writer who made a difference, Vicky Orvis. Her great friend and colleague, Anna Kessel, pays tribute to a journalist who overcame prejudice and who waged a brave battle against illness,
1: but succumbed at the age of 56.
0: My name is Nigel Bidmead.
1: And I'm Ian Beach. And this is A Minute's Applause.
0: In August 1994, Philemon Masinga, a six-foot-four centre-forward, joined Leeds United in a double deal with his fellow South African and centre-half Lucas Radibi. Masinga arrived three weeks before his compatriot and struggled in the alien environment.
2: Yes, it was not that much
1: easy for me to adapt over here. Firstly, everything is against you from the the start. Uh, The new surroundings, new people to live with, new lifestyle, then it was not that much easy because it was for the first time for me to go out of my home country. The Leeds left back at the time was the England international Tony DiRigo and he remembers the arrival of the South Africans slightly differently.
3: I think um, the, the first thing that struck me when they both come was um, their smiles, <laughs> they were so happy, they were so, uh, you know, delighted to be there, and um, it's interesting, obviously, because I've been from the Southern Hemisphere myself, you know, coming from a hot climate in Australia, uh, coming to the cold, you UK, and when these uh, two South African lads turned up, uh, it just brought back so many memories for me because they were freezing, and, and so was I. It's just, the weather was <laughs> absolutely horrific; <laughs> it was just awful. But these two, you know, they go out training, and they were cold, and shivering, and they come back inside, and they're smiling like anything. And um, yeah, I- and they were both uh, quiet characters, um, and I think to get you know players from South Africa at that time was uh, was very unusual. But of course, the, the net was uh, kind of spreading. Uh, throughout the world, but yeah, to get to the two lads come uh, such a different environment for them. You know, totally different weather, and uh, and and trying to you know break through to the, the big time. But uh, they both did you know fantastically well. But I, I, yeah, I remember, I really just remember their demeanour and their, their their happiness really of, of being there.
1: Obviously, Masinga being a, a striker. Um, and enormously tall as well, six foot four inches. I guess you would have come up against him in training or whatever. What, what was he like as a player when he, when he was on the ball?
3: Uh, he was really skillful, uh, extremely skillful. And, and I think the, the difference between uh, where he was playing before uh, in South Africa and the English game was the physicality. And that's what Phil had to, to get used to, because uh, I think you get the ball up to him, he had great control, dribbling ability, uh, and he could finish as well. Uh, but the physical side I think is, is what uh, took him probably a, you know a bit longer but uh once he got used to that you know he had absolutely everything whereas I think Lucas uh you know physically he was uh you know stronger and uh, so that was already part of his game
0: Now Ian you saw Phil Singer play for I Leeds did. United
3: I probably saw
1: him a couple of times but the game that sticks out in my mind was in December 1994 at Highbury when he scored twice against Arsenal Leeds won 3 1 and I remember thinking how good a player he is. Looking back, I thought he was going to be one of the stars of the Premier League, have to be totally honest. He looked that good on that particular day. I remember Arsenal had a few injuries. They they didn't look the way they normally played. They had a few players playing out of position and Phil Singer with his two goals totally exploited that. He was so dangerous when he had the ball at his feet running at the defence and he scored two brilliant goals and he had that quality in scoring one of his goals where you just... He was so unpredictable. You just didn't know what he was going to do next. And that is how he managed to find his way through the Arsenal defence, round the goalkeeper and uh, put the ball basically into an empty net. He was fantastic on that particular day.
0: But at six foot four, you're suggesting that perhaps occasionally, maybe he was Bambi on ice sometimes.
1: Well, I don't remember him being like that. On that day, he was outstanding. It's a bit like watching Usain Bolt being an incredible sprinter at the heights he is. Phil singer showed that day to somebody, who, I was a teenager at the time watching, that you can be that tall and not just be the target man. You can be that tall, be in the team and be a dribbler and make things happen all on your own. And that is exactly what he did.
0: Why didn't his Leeds career take off as you thought it was going to?
1: Well, frankly, he didn't score enough goals. That really is the, the measure, isn't it? First and foremost for any striker. And then Tony Yeboah is signed by Leeds and he gets off to a spectacular start and then it's very, very difficult for Phil to keep his place in the team. But he did have a successful career going on to play for clubs in Italy.
0: He also was very successful for his country. Chipper, as Masinga was known, made his debut in 1992 for South Africa in the first match following the end of apartheid. Later that year, he became the first South African to be sent off in an international. Uh, He was also in the team that won the Africa Cup of Nations in 1996 and a year later scored the goal that took South Africa to the 1998 World Cup in France. But according to South African journalist Fulasande Sigsaba, Masinga was unappreciated in his home country,
2: he was never a fan, a fan favorite, um, and a lot of people, a lot of fans in South Africa, uh, had booed him uh, throughout his, uh, his, his football career, uh, which unfairly so uh, because they thought that he, he, he was not blessed with the skill and the play. That is accustomed with uh, South African football and African football in general. Uh,
0: did the goal that he scored, that important goal that you said uh, sent them to the um, World Cup finals in France? Did did people still boo him even after he'd scored that that important goal?
2: Yeah, it's it, it, it's one of the goals that that are entrenched in, in a lot of people's memories. When you look about, look at uh, at those goals and then how and how that goal came about. Um, you know they, they spoke a, a whole lot uh, about the combination between himself and uh, Dr. Kumalo, who who he played for for Kaizer Chiefs here in the local uh, Premier Soccer League in South Africa, and 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 that goal was was so spectacular because it was it, it was just outside the, the 18-yard area, and the, the, the thunderous strike in, in which it was, it was hit with. Uh, it gave the, the, the goalkeeper no chance, and, and a lot of people, including the, the, the South African Football Association president, Mr. Daniel Dunley, Yadon, remember that goal and how it it changed sort of the, the face of South African football. You know, he really did struggle after uh, after his playing career. Uh, you know, he never had the benefit of, of going into coaching. He never had the benefit of uh, being a referee, so... Times were tough for Mustafa, but at the time of his passing, he was um, he was still studying uh, or had just completed his studies to be an administrator. Uh, the South African Football Association were really keen on on uh, on on including him in, in a lot of its administrative business um, and 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 trying to 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 make another living for 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 and He was on the brink of. Of going into a really good administrative career, so you know those are the challenges that face as African footballers and African footballers in general.
1: So Philasande there says that supporters in South Africa didn't think that Phil Masinga was a particularly skillful player, and yet my memories of him were that he was brilliant in the Premier League, almost as high a level as you could imagine. He was impressive and skillful. And Tony dorigo also felt that he was a, a skillful footballer.
0: Well, it's a game of opinions, and uh, Tony dorigo will have trained with him and played with him for um, two years. So let's go with Tony.
1: One thing I, I would like to just mention before we uh, move on is that there was one game in July 1992. It was a friendly for South Africa against Cameroon, and Phil Masinga scored in that game, and also his cousin Bennett Masinga scored. So the two goals scored by South Africa were by two cousins. And sadly, Bennett Masinga also passed away at a young age, at the age of 48 in 2013. So sad early deaths for both members of the same family. <clears throat> Emiliano Sala had scored 12 goals in 19 league earned games for Nantes, And Cardiff City scouts identified the Argentinian as the striker they needed in their battle to stay in the Premier League.
0: Well, after the 15 pounds transfer was done, but before Salah was able to join his teammates, he died when the light aircraft he was travelling in came down in the English Channel in bad
1: weather. It was another tragedy, really, for English football, and it came less than three months after the helicopter crash that killed Leicester City's owner, the former Wales international Danny Gavidon had two spells at Cardiff and now he's a pundit for BBC Wales. You know, that one is still kind of fresh in the memory as well. Um, obviously a you know, separate, different event, but equally as uh, as tragic really. So still fresh in the memory and then for this to happen um, and obviously for Cardiff City to, to host Leicester's first game after that, I thought the way Cardiff City kind of handle that whole situation, Um, the way they conducted themselves, the fans included, was fantastic. For fellow Wales international Ewan Roberts, Salah's untimely death brought back memories. I've known players who have suffered losses in the past and
3: and they've gone out in a few days' time. I remember Brian Gunn when he lost his, his young daughter Francesca to leukaemia. He played the very next game and he thought it was right for him.
0: So, where does Emiliano Salah's football story start?
1: There's a photograph in here I want you to have a look at. Yeah. This is Emiliano Salah at the age of 14. Just describe what you can see there. Well, that
0: looks like he's in a Bordeaux
1: kit. Yes. In 14, Argentina. In Argentina. So, how did he hook up with Bordeaux? He he comes from humble beginnings mm-hmm. in a small village, Kululu. What did his father do? His father was a truck driver mm-hmm. and he's got... An Italian passport. It's not uncommon for Argentinian players to be able to, or Argentinian people to be able to claim um, uh, an Italian passport. And it means he can go and apply his trade in Europe. Just bear that in mind when you hear the story. He's 14. He goes to play. He gets recruited to play in a football school about an, an hour or so from uh, where hang he Hang on lives. a minute. You say he's a
0: good footballer, but for him to be posing in a Bordeaux shirt... At the age of 14, he must have been exceptional to catch the eye of their scouts. Well,
1: he didn't. Act, he wasn't playing for Bordeaux at the time. He's He's gone to a football school. At the age of 14, he's recruited to this football school, and it has links with two clubs in Europe, Mallorca in Spain and Bordeaux in France. But very early on, at the age of 14, here he is. He's standing there in that football strip in the Bordeaux kit. His mind is on the possibility of going to play in Europe. You can see that from that photograph and everything that unfolds i think in Emiliano Sala's life is him going in that direction and in many ways Emiliano Sala's career is constantly improving it's one step up every year small steps maybe always moving away further from home in many many ways even the last transfer where he goes from Nantes to to Cardiff literally moving further north further away but i think that is the thing that there's this real progression in his career he was 28 when he when he disappeared but you know if we go through if we look at what happened in his in his footballing career every season something better happened. there's another step on but like a
0: lot of young players um and i think we're coming to understand this now he didn't really reach full sort of maturity or full potential until he was what 25 there's
1: this there's this thing about his career so at the age of 20 he moves to Bordeaux that Mm -hmm. is a permanent transfer he's on the books, he's playing in France he gets loaned out when he's 22, he plays in the third division for a club, Orléans at 23 he gets moved to another club in the second division, New York he's scoring goals for both of these teams then at 25, so he goes back to play for Bordeaux for one season then at 25 he goes to Cannes on loan and there's a question mark at the age of 25 Do Bordeaux want to keep this player?
0: Just to be clear, Emiliano Salah was not just a player that had pitched up at Nantes, had been there for a season and a half and and wanted a big move. He, He had been around in French football for a
1: number of years. Before Nantes, he'd played for four clubs and Bordeaux was the kind of parent club while he was sent out on loan three times. In 2005, January 2005 having not really made a breakthrough, he suddenly makes a breakthrough. There are two games that he plays against top teams, Paris Saint-Germain and Lens, and he scores four goals in those two games in five days, two in each match, two against Paris Saint-Germain, and he's playing against Thiago Silva and David Luiz, two Brazilian international defenders, top-class players. He scores twice in that game, against a top French international goalkeeper, Steve Mondonda. He does the same. And now he's getting praise from Marcelo Bielsa, the doyen of Argentinian coaches, who's playing his trade in France. People listen to him. Yeah, this guy is a player. And that's when he moves to Nantes.
0: Journalist Hugh McIlvenny was a master of his craft. He started his career as a reporter on the Kilmarnock Standard in the 1950s and ended it as a columnist for the Sunday Times in 2016. He wrote about football, boxing and horse racing with an unrivalled authority and style.
1: McIlvenny wrote for The Observer for 30 years and we're going to hear an extract from a piece he wrote in September 1985. It features the passing of his great friend Jock Steen. It's read by Rayhan Yusuf.
4: The larcenous nature of death, its habit of breaking in on us when we are least prepared and stealing the irreplaceable, has seldom been more sickeningly experienced than at Ninian Park in Cardiff on Tuesday night. Those of us who crowded sweatily into the small entrance hall of the main stand to wait for word of Jock condition will always remember the long half-hour in which the understandable vagueness of reports filtering from the dressing room lulled us into believing that Jock was going to make it throughout yet another crisis. The raw dread that had been spread among us by his collapse on the touchline at the end of the Wales-Scotland World Cup match gave way to the more bearable gloom of acknowledging that the career of one of the greatest managers football has known would have to be ended by immediate retirement. Then off in a corner of that confused room, Mike England, the manager of Wales, and a deeply concerned first-hand witness of what had been happening to Steen was heard to say that he was still very, very poorly. There was no mistaking the true meaning of those words, and suddenly the sense of relief that had been infiltrating our anxieties was exposed as baseless. We felt almost guilty about having allowed ourselves to be comforted by rumours. Then abruptly, we knew for sure that the big man was dead. And for some of us, it was indeed as if our spirits, our very lives, had been burglarised.
1: Nigel, when did you first become aware of Hugh McElvinny's sports writing?
0: I think it must have been the late 70s, when, you know, avid consumer of newspapers used to read him a lot. And he was striking in his originality. And as we mentioned, his authority and, and style, they were so unusual. When I worked for the National Union of Journalists, having left college, um, one of my duties was to go through the membership cards. And when I pulled his out, it was just great. He's a member of a union. It, it was really heartening to to know that. I then next saw him at White Hart Lane very early in my reporting career. Um, he's standing outside in the rain waiting for a player, waiting to talk to a player. And I, I remember thinking, well, what chance have we got if, if someone of his yeah. stature and... Is, uh, is is having His to reputation. wait in the rain, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I met him at Wembley, the old Wembley, in a uh, after a midweek game. He was coming down to the lift. I introduced myself. Said I was a, a big fan, and he just wished me luck. So that was that was quite a special moment. And I think a lot of a lot of us guys would say that we're not really starstruck when we meet Thierry Henry or Dennis Bergkamp or Arsene Wenger, but when you meet people who you really respect as writers and journalists and broadcasters, you, you get a little bit starstruck.
1: Now. As an avid consumer of the newspapers as well, and you have opinions about what you think makes a good sports writer, where do you think Hugh McElvenny sits in your opinion as as one of the the greatest people to write about the sports?
0: For me, he's up there with Red Smith, the great American writer. Red Smith wrote primarily before TV became the all-dominant way that we consume sports Hugh McIlvenny complemented TV so they're, they're from different eras and that is purely an opinion we've produced some great ones we did an obituary of James Lawton didn't we um, another you know, fantastic stylist and, and somebody who worked across all sorts of sports um, I think McIlvenny was particularly strong on boxing but his football writing is extraordinary as well
1: Vicky Orvis also began her career on a local newspaper. After the Wakefield Express, she worked for the Western Daily Press and the Daily Mail before joining The Sun, where she covered athletics as well as football.
0: She was also a founding board member of Women in Football, an organisation dedicated to supporting professional women working in and around the sport. Anna Kessel was a co-founder of Women in Football.
5: Vicky was an integral part of Women in Football for many, many years. Um, it was she who approached us. She said, "I should be part of this." I love that about her. Um, that was that was always her approach to life. That she wouldn't wait to be asked; she would go and ask, be proactive, be part of it. She was so important to women in football in terms of providing contacts, um, arranging events, knowing who to speak to, having those difficult conversations with really senior people, always bringing with, with her. You know, she went to, to a match. She would make sure that everybody around her she spoke to about WIF. Um, throughout the time that she was with us, she, she had cancer the entire time. Um and it was just part of her life. Uh, you know, she would drop you a message and say, I'm just writing the press release for us. Um, on the drip at the Marsden. You know, she saw it as as part of, of her world and um and I think we all learned a lot from her hearing about her experiences, um, and of course were hugely admiring of the way that she managed to continue um everything that she was doing despite her illness. Vicky managed to thrive in a very male-dominated environment. In a workplace that her first week in the job, they said, don't worry lads, we'll have her out of here in tears in a week. Um, And she stayed for another 25 years. But what I always really liked and respected about Vicky was that despite getting on with it and despite managing to, to make friends with many of the men that she worked with and And challenged the ones who she didn't see eye to eye with. She never denied that there was a problem. She always, always stood up for women and championed them. And that is so important for women to acknowledge each other's struggles, to acknowledge that there are barriers and challenges and difficulties, um, not erase them by saying, well, you know, I'm all right and I've managed, so it's fine. Um, And I I love that about Vicky. And and that was so much of what drove her, her passion to be part of women in football, to really make things better for other women, for the next generation, so that they didn't have to go through the things that she and all of us have had to go through. After Vicky died, I reflected a lot on on her life and, and our relationship. And um, at the funeral... She had written a a note to be read out by Ian, her husband. Um, an amazing, an amazing piece of writing. She was so talented. She had us both in tears and also crying with laughter. She was so funny. Um, and in that note, she said to Ian, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not one of these kind of sweethearts that, uh, you know, wouldn't say boo to a goose. She said, Ian, tell it like it is, tell people how who I really am and how, how I live my life and that's something that I will always remember about Vicky she was fiery and she was fierce many people after she died said that initially they found her intimidating even if later on they became such good friends and appreciated her her love and support and warmth she definitely could be really challenging and really intimidating and I think that was something that I took away from her life that, that has meant a lot to me, actually. It's very rare that we see women um, displaying anger or strength or being challenging when they do. So often they're torn down for it. Think of Serena Williams at the US Open and her challenging the umpire and the way the world just kind of turned on her and um, tried to tear her apart. I think it was, it was brilliant that Vicky was true to herself. She stood in her truth. She lived her life as the woman who she was and there was such a, a valuable lesson to all of us in doing that.
1: Anna Kessel there, remembering her friend, colleague and Sheffield United fan, Vicky Orvis. This has been A Minute's
0: Applause. Until next time, it's bye for now.